All right, well, good morning again, everybody. Thanks for being here. This morning, we're going to be studying a very interesting event that happened in Galatians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 11. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. You can use your phone, your iPad, or the verses will be on the screen right behind me. So as you're looking that up, give you a little background. What makes this story so interesting that we're going to be studying is we're going to see uh, an event that exposes one of the weaknesses in one of the disciples, at least at this right there at this time. And the way that it plays out, the way it's important is, it, is that we're going to see it have a negative impact on the people around them, right? Uh, one thing that's important to note is the early Christian church, when it started out, it started out in and around Jerusalem, and they were all Jews. And so they all, they all had very similar beliefs in their understanding of the Jewish law, how it applied to you, uh, what they ate, how they lived, with the holidays they, separ- they uh, celebrated. But as the church began to spread beyond Jerusalem and go farther and farther out, they encountered more and more people who weren't Jews. And they uh, converted them and brought them to the faith. And then that brought up some interesting questions. For example, what qualified you exactly to be a Christian? Did you have to be a Jew? If you were a Jew, how much of a Jew did you have to be? Like at what point? Like, and those are some good questions. And some people were going to see answered those questions for themselves. Some people sought God for the way forward, Jesus Christ as well. And we're going to see even when God did provide the answers, some people could still have weakness and still go off on their own way. And we're going to see that this is an event that's going to unfold between Peter and Paul. So let's start reading at verse 11 and see what it says. Galatians chapter 2. Uh, Verse 11, when Cephas, and that means Peter, that's one of his other names, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So already we can see it's starting out like very friendly, right? This is going to be very cordial. Actually not. Very short but brief what Paul just said. What happened here is Peter, a.k.a. uh, Cephas, he had traveled, part of his travels, he went to Antioch, which was a city about 450 miles north of Jerusalem. And they were doing that to continue to spread the word of Jesus Christ. And when he arrived there, he encountered uh, Gentiles. Like, for example, I believe all of us are probably Gentiles. And he encountered Gentiles and Jewish people. And you're going to see it's the difference in how he treats those two groups that makes the difference. That's the one that causes the problem. Now, Peter, for one, was probably hoping the way he treated them, the difference, was going to go unnoticed. Nobody was going to pick up on it. But, of course, that didn't happen. uh, Paul totally saw it. And brought it up. And if you really study Paul, you're going to probably get the idea he was not one for being subtle. He is out there, and he is in your face, and, and it's good, and that's what he did. did. So in the next few verses, let's read how it goes down. Uh, starting at verse 12 to 13. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. He's talking about Peter. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So there's a lot happening here. We need a little background to, to, to fully understand what's going on. So first off, we need to understand that prior to this event, the disciples, like the twelve, had all agreed that Paul, who was writing this, was called by God. And his job was to join them in spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. And we know this because what it tells us in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. This is uh, Paul talking. He says, James, Cephas, which is Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. 
So they all agreed here that um, the disciples would go to the Jews and Paul and Barnabas would go where? To Gentiles, to the other group. They're all on the same team. You get that vibe. We're all on the same team. You just go to the right. We're going to go to the left, right? But you'll notice, even though it appears all is well, there's still a distinction being made, and Paul makes this distinction as well between what? Two groups. The Jews who are circumcised and who? The Gentiles who are not. You have two, two groups. You have two groups. And whenever there are two groups, Satan likes to take advantage of that. And we're going to see at one point he's going to drive a wedge in there. So like Paul stated in Galatians 2.9, Peter, James, and John, hey, we're going to go here, you guys go over there. And that was, that was the plan. And all was going well. Everything was going well. The church is expanding, things are going good. But fate would have it that at some point in the future, Paul and Peter come face to face in Antioch. And this difference is really going to burst wide open. So let's go back to uh, Galatians 2.12 and 13, which we just read. Let's read it again because now you've got a little bit of background. He says, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So what Paul is describing is before these people, these circumcised people from uh, the Jews from um, Jerusalem came and they were used to hang out with James, Peter had no trouble hanging out with, let's just, let's just assume we're all the Gentile group. Peter had no trouble hanging out with each one of us. We ate together. He ate in our houses, we ate with him, we hung out, we had buffalo wings, all that kind of stuff. We golfed together, it was cool. There was no difference, you couldn't tell who was who, right? What background was what? But then this group of circumcised believers comes to town. And what happens? Peter forgets that he even knows us. Ryan who? No, no. Never heard, I don't just never met the guy. And he only hangs out with who? The circumcised Jews. And that's what happened. And Peter was probably hoping nobody was going to notice, right? But obviously, it doesn't happen that way. But you're going to notice, if you look closely, Peter never, as far as we know, ever comes out and says anything specific. By his behavior, what he does, he indicates what everyone needs to know. His actions indicate that there's a class system. The Jewish believers who are circumcised are probably what? A little higher up. And what's everybody else? You know what I'm getting at, right? I mean, very subtle. But everybody noticed it. Especially, would you notice it if he did it to you? And would that, here's the question, would that help you in your faith or hurt you in your faith? It would hurt. Because why? Maybe you're not saved. I mean, this dude is Peter. He was with Jesus. If anybody's going to know, it's him, and now look how he's treating you. Right? So that's what's happening. And what's interesting is why he did this. Verse 12 tells us that Peter did this because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He was afraid. And this is kind of, this is kind of interesting. Because Peter, he was the rock on which the church was built. Right? His faith. Jesus said that. That's him. And he's afraid of the legalists, at least in this particular moment. He was afraid of the men who think you need to be circumcised and follow all the laws in order to be saved. And instead of standing up to these men, having a debate with them, at least something, nothing. He just lets them take the driver's seat. He changes to meet their beliefs without a fight. 
But believe it or not, that's not the worst of it. Because remember, that's him doing that to us. Then what happens? Verse 13 tells us there were other Jews around who saw this, who used to be buddies with us too, and now what? They're ignoring us too. So this infection is likely is spreading. It doesn't just involve Peter and the and the, the Gentiles. Other people see this, other Jews, and they start treating the Gentiles the exact same way. And he says, even Barnabas was led astray. So it's getting worse. Peter's inaction, his action, what he actually did in, in not standing up, ultimately gave permission for other people to do the exact same thing. Whether he intended for that for it to happen is irrelevant because it happened. His behavior allowed that to happen. And this, this is one of the reasons why religion in particular can be so dangerous in the wrong hands. Believe it or not, everything myself, Pastor Joey, Pastor Craig teaches you from up here, everything we tells you, tell you either gives you permission to do certain things or restricts you from doing certain things. I mean, think about it. So let's get specific on that. For example, if we preach, if we preach up here that all sin is sin, Lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, homosexuality, refusing to forgive, love of money, name it. All that's a sin, and we live that out. We try to do that ourselves. That should either cause you guys to come with us, like lean in that direction, head that way, or if we picked certain sins were worse than others, and we kind of treated people who did those sins a little worse, how might you guys treat those people a little worse? I mean, there'd be people you'd have over to your house to eat. It just may not be. I mean, you're laughing, but you know that it's true. It's true. And that's how it spreads. That's how it works, because you, you, you can't do that, right? And, and even think about it like this. You ever met a, uh, there are some Christians out there who believe, even if they don't come out and say it. I mean, first of all, we're all going to heaven, but when the gates, pearly gates open up wide, our denomination is probably first. I mean, you guys are there, but you're, again, you're laughing, but is there truth to that? Has anyone come out and said that verbally? No. But you can pick up on it. Just like what's happening with Peter. You separate. You drive, put it in there, you drive a wedge, and it starts to separate. Those behaviors lead to that. For example, this is true as well. Some churches, they go hardcore against homosexuality, and it is a sin. But they don't talk about adultery between straight people, between married couples, because here's the truth of it. If you look it up, approximately 2 to 3% two to 3% of the population is gay, homosexual. 2 to 3%. You know the percentage of married couples, or married people who eventually have an affair at some point in their life? 20 to 40%. So we have infidelity, is far more common, 10 to 20 times more common than homosexuality is. But yet, what do we, some churches like to go all hardcore on? And then if you're in, if, if you're from that, is that much of an incentive to come to Jesus Christ? Because no, you're like, you're worse off. That's the message. Here's another example. In some churches, they like to push, and I've experienced this in both sides, they like to push a very liberal theology, and you need to be in line with that, or a very conservative theology. They do, they do this. They lean one way, and I've experienced this. But that can be just as detrimental as what Peter did. For example, what if in this church, what if in this church we taught you 
Jesus was Republican. He's very red. Come on. He's red. He's very conservative. We know this. And then that's how you should vote. What if you have friends or family who lean to the other way? Aren't they technically voting against Jesus? You're telling me that's not a conclusion some people would make? What if it's the other side? And I've seen this too. What if, no, Jesus is a Democrat. Oh man, he's so blue. He's blue. And that's how he would vote. So the people on the right, they're kind of voting against Jesus, aren't they? So if we taught that, if someone believed differently, more differently than you pub, uh, politically, what's the likelihood that you would have them at your house? You'd reach out to them. It's true. It happens. Would we think of them as the same? No. Here's a real example, and I experienced this personally. This was several months back. Did not happen here. You don't know this person. I went to another church, and the pastor, standing in the lobby, as I walked in, hey, he's drinking from a cup, a coffee mug. It said liberal tears on it. In the lobby. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This is not a statement about how you should vote one way or the other. Everyone here should use your vote the way you think is best. We all have our own opinions, our own backgrounds. Our country has a lot of problems. Vote the way you think is best. Please do that. But my question is, if you were left-leaning and you walked into that church looking for Jesus to understand him more, how would that make you feel? Let's go to the other side. What if you were right-leaning, you were conservative, and you walked into a church, and I know pastors that are far left, and they had a coffee mug that said conservative tears. What would that do to you? Would that bring you closer to Jesus and feel like, I can talk to this person? Or what would it do? I got to get out of here. Would you even want to go to that? Right? It, and the point is, this is what Paul is doing. This is what he's trying to say is we either teach Jesus Christ or we do not. You can't, do, you can't t- serve two masters. You either teach Jesus. Or you don't. We hold fast to what he taught or we put our fingerprints all over it. Or we do what Peter did, and we show clear, pref- clear preference for one side or the other. And that's what ha- that's happening. He caved at that point. And that's how it happens. That's how it spreads. Because remember, and this is why it's also so important, remember, when Paul saw this, other people saw Peter doing this, and they started to do it as well. So it's not just about you. It's bigger than that. So again, the reason why Paul wrote about this and describes it is that these behaviors, they hurt the church. We are to come to believe in Jesus Christ and then we are to reach out to others. And we hurt ourselves when we do things like that. They can literally pull you, they can pull others away from Jesus Christ. So, since, so today, since we're talking about on this subject, regardless of how you vote or where you go, right, left, forward, back, you are welcome in this church. We want you here. We preach Jesus Christ. A healthy church reaches Everybody. That's our calling. That's what we are supposed to do. So go ahead, lean left, whatever. You come here, we talk about Jesus Christ. And everybody is worthy of Jesus Christ, okay? Everybody. Now, the other thing which is cool is when you read these stories, and you read these stories, and you, it, it sounds like it's describing one of the disciples or somebody didn't do something very well. The reason it's in there, the reason it's written is because the disciples are not perfect. They never 
were. So when you read that, hopefully it makes you connect with them a little bit and say, you know what, look, look, look how Peter stumbled. It's Peter. And we all stumble someday too, but look what he was able to accomplish. Look what God was able to work through him. So it humanizes them, and we should learn from that. We should learn from their weaknesses, their lack of faith when they tr- stumble, and learn that we can, we can do that too, and we can still come back. Right? So here's another question. Should Peter have known better? Should he have known this, right? Like, for example, was this question of to be Jewish or not Jewish or circumcised, was this just brand new and he's like out on his own trying to figure it out? But the answer is no, he actually knew this. He should have known better. Because God had already shown them this in Acts uh, chapter 10. And it just so happens in that story, God sent him out to baptize a man named Cornelius. Now what's interesting about the story is Peter's hanging out and he has this vision of this blanket coming down and it's full of animals that are totally unclean, stuff he cannot, def, definitely can't eat. But it's full of them, and he has this, here's this vision, this voice that says, kill and eat. Like, eat lots of bacon. I can't eat bacon. No, you need to, no, I can't. And while he's wondering what this means, these men come to the door and they ask for him. And, this, uh, and the Holy Spirit tells him, go with this man. Go with these men. I've sent them. Go with them. Just Peter, trust me. I just told you to eat animals you can't eat. Trust me on this, right? There's a point. So he goes with them, and they arrive at Cornelius' house. And then Cornelius explains to him, listen, I'm a believer in God. I don't know that much. I want to know more. That's what God sent me, and and God gave me a vision to send for you. And God did this for a reason. So help me. What do we need to know? And then the text tells us that Cornelius and his family began praising God right there, praising God, and they spoke in tongues. At that point, Peter realizes the Holy Spirit was sent to them as well. And then he says, now I realize God does not make a distinction between Jew and Gentile, but gives his spirit to all people. So when he baptizes them, the whole household, it's awesome, great day. But that's not all. Peter then eventually travels back to Jerusalem, and when he goes back there, he tells everybody what happened. You're never going to guess what happened. I went and I baptized this guy Cornelius. And they're like, no, he's not a Jew. What are you doing? You can't go in his house. And they're very upset. And he says, but you've got to understand, I had this vision. He explains about the blanket, about God. He said, hey, Cornelius' family, they were praising God. They were speaking in tongues just like us, which means God does not differentiate. So if, I can't, if God doesn't differentiate, how can I? So I baptized him. And everybody got there like, yes. You know, high fives all around. Right? Great day. And that's what happens. But at some point in the future, Peter travels around and he eventually comes to this town called Antioch. Paul is there. And you have this huge group of Jews and non-Jews. And, Paul, and Peter kind of hopes this slips by. And he's, but before Paul arrives and these other people arrive, he's very much hanging out with non-Jews, eating not very much non-kosher foods. Totally hang out with them. But then these legalistic Jews arrives, and what does he do? He ignores everybody, just hangs out with the Jews, pushes everything aside that he has learned. He treats everybody else like second-class citizens. Again, we know this is wrong, not only from his own personal experiences, but he hung out with Jesus for three years. Did Jesus make a distinction between Jews and non-Jews? No. He went into non-Jews' homes, sinners' homes. He ate with them. He hung out with them. And we know this because the Pharisees got very angry with Jesus for this. There's a lot of debates like, what are you doing? But Jesus was here for everyone. He made no distinction. So the point is, Peter can't claim ignorance. He just had a big moment of weakness. He caved. 
And this is why Paul stands up to him. This is why Paul does it so forcefully, so in front of everybody. He does not pull him off to the side. Hey, Peter, listen, you really could do a little better here. You know, sends him an email off to the side. He says, you did this in public? This is going to happen in public. So let's go to verse 14, Galatians 2.14. Let's continue. He says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas, and again, that's Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And he asked a really, really good question. He says, Peter, you're a Jew. I know you. You live like a Jew. You've always lived like a Jew, but now you live like a Gentile. You're living like a Gentile. But you're telling the Gentiles they have to live like a Jew? That makes no sense. Explain that. How, does that, how can you do that? And likely before Peter was able to answer, Paul continues. This is what he says in verses 15 to 16. He says, we who are Jews by birth, and not saying with Gentiles, we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. But by the works of the law, no one will justify. So Peter, there's this division, and Peter makes it worse. And Paul is here is going, no, we're the same. We are justified by faith alone. It's so beautiful what he said. It's uncompromising. He says, we have the law. We know it. It doesn't save us. Only Jesus does. And that's what he's talking about when he says the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, the law shows us our sin. The law is good. We need it. It shows us our sin. But then because of that, once we understand we're sinners, we should look to Jesus Christ for salvation. That's the purpose of the gospel. And in my opinion, one of the reasons Paul is so upfront with Peter is he should have known this. He says both him and Paul, both Peter and Paul, grew up with the law from the youth. They, they didn't recently convert. They were born into that faith. They understood everything. They had celebrated all the Jewish holidays, ate all the right foods, did everything they were supposed to. But were they saved? No. What saved them? Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. They were no different from the Gentiles. Now, it's also important to note here and understand the kind of faith that Paul is talking about when he's calling out Peter. Uh, since we have this big issue going on, we need to understand some of the subtleties in the word faith and the way it's used. And the way Paul has used the word faith is that it can almost be translated as, into, as believing into Jesus Christ. It means committing, dedicated, learning, following him. It definitely does not mean nodding your head. Yep, totally, yep, yep. And then going back to your life. That's not faith. What he means is faith, meaning I believe and then I follow him. That's where I go. That's it. And he's making the distinction. He's like, Peter, you're totally this. Going, oh yeah, totally, and not doing it. And that's what he's referring to. Like another way to describe it is uh, Jesus should be our true north, Right? Whether the wind is blowing east, west, or south, where are we headed? Where are we trying to get to? Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring to. Now, as we continue ver uh, a little further into chapter 2, we're going to come to uh, verses 17 and 18. And when you read this part, it's almost, it can be a little confusing at first because of what Paul's saying. It's almost like he's having an argument with himself. But what he's really doing, he's closing off a potential excuse some people might try to give for their behavior. Uh, Paul's very experienced. 
he's spread the gospel a lot of different places, so he's had a lot of different debates with people, uh, and that's where he's coming from. So let's read that, verses 17 and 18. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. So again, if you look closely at his words, you can get this idea that he's talked to somebody in, the, in his past that has said, yeah, but Jesus is the one pushing sin. He's the one. Doing, he's, that's why he's telling everybody they're a sinner. And of course, of course, he's the one to be there to save him. It's almost like a fireman starting fires. He's creating a job for himself. That's what they're arguing. And since Paul's heard this before, he's like, no, that is absolutely not true. Jesus didn't start the fire. Who did? We did. Jesus didn't broke the law. Who actually broke the law? We did. We did. And he says, listen, it's even worse in verse 18. If I broke it, I'm a lawbreaker. What's actually worse is if I know the law, break it, try to rebuild it, and then justify myself by the law I already broke. The law is actually a mirror that simply shows us our sin, who we are. Jesus gave himself to be our Savior to pull us out of that mess. And whether we realize that or not, Paul's saying that's how it is. Now, we should also note that the way Paul formulates this argument, he's also suggesting that to know the law, break it, and then try to justify yourself by that law is worse than not knowing the law at all and breaking it. Does that kind of make sense? Like, here, like here's an example we talked about recently when we studied Romans 2. Uh, it, imagine a person on my left here. They went to church their whole life. They know the law. They went to Sunday school. They got a couple Bibles in their house. They got a, who got the Bible app on your phone? Everybody, right? You got the Bible app on your phone. This is this person. They know the law. They still break it. Then you have someone over here who's never been to church, doesn't own a Bible, does not have the Bible app on the phone, and they break a law, biblical, but they don't know the law. Which one is kind of worse? And he's saying, and you're the one doing that, but then you're trying to justify yourself by the law you broke and you knew, already knew it was He's like, That's, you can't do it. That's even worse. He says, if I broke the law, then I'm the one who did. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the next verse we're going to read is really, really good. Um, and you've likely heard it before. And it's kind of, I think it's ironic that some of the best verses in the Bible come out of hardship when people don't get it right. It almost seems like in my mind they should be the exact opposite. Somebody does something great and profound and you get this awesome verse. Actually, what happens is usually somebody doesn't get something right. They mess it up. They have a bad faith. And then we get this really cool teaching, right? And so that's what this is coming from. Uh, it's verses 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when Paul says, for through the law I died to the law, he means it was the law that showed him his sin. The law showed him he was lost, never to do this on his own. He had no help. That's what he means. He couldn't help himself. He couldn't fix it. It basically crushed his idea that he could save himself because he was a Pharisee. That was his training. And also what he's saying is, listen, if God gave us the law, that means he's showing us that we're a sinner. He's not trying to show us that we can fix ourselves. He's showing us that we're sinners so that we can look to him and Jesus Christ for salvation. 
And I got to give Paul a lot of credit. As I said, he was a Pharisee. His whole training was about the law. It started and ended with the law. That's how they lived. So for him to come to the realization, the law simply shows me, shows me I'm a sinner. It can't save me. And I got to look to Jesus Christ was a really big deal for him. So we got to give him a little bit of credit there. Now, the next part of the verse is what I was referring to about being just this really, really great verse. Is verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I just love that. That is so good. And so what this comes down to, again, is dying uh, by the law means the law shows us that we are convicted of our sins, that we should die to our old ways, to die to our selfish designs. Because if we do that, that means we understand what Jesus did. If we refuse to do that, if we see that and refuse to do that, it means Christ uh, died for nothing. And that's a big deal. We are guilty. So at the very minimum, we should turn our lives over to him and follow him. Another way to kind of think of it is, think of it if each one of us got arrested for a crime. We actually did something wrong, broke a law, we got arrested, we got convicted, now we're getting ready to go to the jail to serve out our sentence. But right before we go, a family member steps forward and takes our place. They go to jail for us. Totally get off scot-free. We can either do one or two things. We can then either go, whoo, dodge that bullet, right back to where we were, or we can die to ourselves and turn over a new leaf and really try to do better. See, and we try to paint it that way. That's what this is about. The only true way to show Jesus Christ himself that we understand that we're sinners and he died for us is to die to ourselves and then to follow him, to turn over a new leaf. And the way that Paul describes that is we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. I think it's just, that's just powerful. That's just an amazing way to describe that. So let's come to our last verse, verse 21. Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God. This is important what he's saying. I, do, I don't, do not set aside the grace of God. For it's righteousness, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now this one really brings it home. It kind of just seals the whole thing. If we try to insert our own works, our own ideas, our own thoughts, we try to add that stuff to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, then what Paul's saying is that Christ died for nothing. He died for nothing. And that may sound harsh, but it's true. And here's how you know this. Imagine this scene. Imagine we could be there on the day Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. We saw him get arrested, beaten, whipped, nailed to this big wooden cross. He's hanging there, struggling to breathe, dying slowly. And there's a guy below him, imagine this me, going, yeah, that's awesome, that's great. But if you were just a little more Jewish, if you were just a little more this denomination, I mean, you'd just be a little, little better. What does that do to what Jesus is? It, it it's just trashes everything. And what Paul's saying is you need nothing. All that matters is Jesus Christ, that he died for you. Every one of you. Anything we add to that taints it. And we can't do that. That's what he's saying. That's the important part. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, Today we learned about a significant event that occurred between Peter and Paul. And that event highlights how each one of us, including the disciples, we can experience weakness, we can be influenced, we can, in general, just not follow your son the way he intended. But Father, today we ask that you help each one of us in our faith. Help us to see all the ways that we can improve, all the ways we can be a better example of your son, Jesus Christ. 
We believe in him. We place our trust in him. We thank you for the work that he did to save each one of us. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.